So if you didn't pick up on it, I'm, what we're going to talk about today here at church is the time Jesus went to a party and made a bunch of wine for people who had run out, <laughs> which is probably not a sentence you expected to hear this Sunday morning unless you were in the form of life reading along preparing for today. Most of us, I think, when, when we probably think about Jesus, whether we're Christian or not, or whatever our familiarity with the New Testament, we probably imagine a few different things. If I say the name Jesus, perhaps you think of Jesus as stoic and, and unmoved. Maybe you think of a man of sorrows and serious. Maybe you think of someone who's angry and judgmental. But honestly, I, I wonder how many of us, when we hear the name Jesus, think of like a party animal. How many of us can, can close our eyes and we imagine Jesus is, is smiling, he's laughing, he's cutting a rug, he's smirking at a joke, he's making sure everyone's drink is refreshed. It almost sounds irreverent to say out loud if it weren't exactly what we read about in our text this morning. If you've been with us these last few weeks, you know we've been in the book of John, the gospel of John, and here in chapter 2, John gives us a picture of Jesus we probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about. Jesus, the life of the party. And that's a consistent picture in the Gospels. In fact, it's, it's not just John who points this out. Matthew, in his Gospel, he, he records the Pharisees, Jesus' enemies, accused him over and over again of being a glutton and a drunkard. There was something about Jesus that really religious people did not understand. Something that, about his kingdom that made them uncomfortable. Something about the kind of people he associated with that made others misunderstand him. There was something about the celebration that he was bringing that put certain religious people in a very uncelebratory mood. But that something is actually critical for us to know if we want to know who Jesus really is and what he comes to offer us, okay? We have to go to the party with Jesus to know what he's about. So if you have a Bible with you, I want you to turn to the book of John, chapter 2. So that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth book in your New Testament, chapter 2. Last week, uh, we talked about Jesus and his early disciples. So Jesus was going out recruiting uh, some uh, people to serve with him, who would travel with him and learn directly from him. And serve in ministry with him for three years. So we've got Peter and Andrew and Nathaniel and Philip. And then one unnamed disciple who is probably John himself, the writer of the gospel. And a few days, John records, after those guys decide to hitch their wagons to Jesus, they get an invitation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So Cana, if you're not familiar, was a nearby town in Galilee to where the previous uh, stories took place. Uh, but it seems that Jesus and his followers were invited to this wedding, not necessarily because Jesus was from there, uh, but because of Mary, Jesus' mother. So John mentions her first, says, well, Mary was there. And so then Jesus and his followers were also invited. So it would make sense that whatever wedding this is, is probably some kind of family friend and Mary was available to come and help. She has some kind of formal role at the party. Maybe she's the planner. We don't really know. 
But everyone is invited and everyone is there from all over this area. And if you aren't familiar uh, with this, you know, weddings in the ancient world in general, and in particular ancient Israel, were a really big deal. They could last for days and days. And there weren't many occasions, like, you know, think about this, in a, in, a, in a poor small village for celebration. There just wasn't a lot of spare time or spare money to do that. Uh, and so when somebody got married, it was like the talk of the town for weeks. It was, this, was, this was the big thing that everybody's going to do. And the hosts of the wedding had a lot at stake. If you've ever hosted a wedding, you know how stressful it can be, even under the best of circumstances. Everyone you know and care about is coming. There's family and there's friends and there's maybe even coworkers there and employers and bosses, maybe customers and clients, and they all bring expensive gifts, hopefully. So you had better have enough food and drink to make it worth everybody's while to throw a good party. And then you add to that the honor and shame dynamics of a Middle Eastern culture. And maybe you can feel your blood pressure start to rise a little bit when you hear John's next verse, verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So somebody along the way skimped on the wine order, or everybody had too much, I have no idea. And Mary who has some formal role to play. She goes to her son, Jesus, who's there and lets him know the problem. We don't really know what Mary expects her son to do about this problem um, because he couldn't just run out to the supermarket and grab two buck chuck or whatever. Like this wasn't an option at this time. There's literally nothing to do here but apologize and start handing out waters short of a miracle. Which, of course, is where Jesus' mind goes. That's why he says to his mother, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, in English, that sounds way harsher than John intends. Right? We don't use the, the, the word woman as a title anymore. But a better, maybe a better way to understand it is close to the English ma'am. It was respectful, but a little distancing. Probably not something you would say often to your own mother. And I think Jesus is here reminding his mother that whatever she expects him to do, it is not up to her, and his hour has not yet come. Now hold that thought. So Jesus, gently but clearly, he tells his mother not to involve him, but she does anyway, like a typical mom. So she looks at the servants nearby, and she says, do whatever he tells you. And she walks away, leaving the problem with Jesus, basically saying, Jesus, it's you or nothing. So you figure it out. Now here things get really crazy. So Jesus, he grabs the servants and he, and he walks everyone over to some huge jars. That's verse 6. There were six stone jars meant to hold water for purification. So before you would enter a party like this, uh, it seems that you would at least kind of wash your hands as you entered with this water. And the utensils used to serve the food perhaps was washed in, by this water as well. So Jesus finds these jars and he tells the servants, fill them up. All the way up to the brim. And if my math is correct, which is always debatable, but I think with, John, with, the, with the categories John gives us, this is about 100 to 150 gallons of water in these jars. Uh, so picture like a 30-gallon trash can 
uh, those big 30-gallon trash cans. There's three or four of those worth of water represented here. And so the, the servants fill them up with water. And then in verse 8, Jesus tells them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now this guy, this master of the feast, uh, was like what we would call a master of ceremonies and, and probably the host of the venue where the wedding is taking place. And he would, among other things, he would taste everything before it was served to any guest to make sure it was up to snuff. Okay, it's his call. Either way, before anything hits the table, it's up to him. Now, John doesn't feel the need to tell us the mechanics of what happens here. But by the time the cup goes from the servants drawing out water to this man's lips, the water has become wine. Now, there's a rumor floating around out there that what Jesus does here is make really good grape juice. Maybe you've heard that before, which I understand because, and this is real, our relationship to alcohol as individuals can be complicated. Alcohol can destroy lives and families and marriages and communities. It can. So don't get me wrong. I understand the temptation to say that Jesus would have nothing to do with something so potentially dangerous, but let me tell you that would be a mistake to think that way. Because remember with me, big picture, all pleasure and food and drink, sex, rest, those things can be abused, but it's all God's idea. It reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis, who was a British author, uh, kind of post-World War II. Um, And he wrote a, a book called The Screwtape Letters, which if you're not familiar, is a series of fictional letters between a senior demon at the Department of you know, Temptation, to a junior demon. He's coaching this junior demon on how to trap and entice humans to disobey the enemy, and the enemy being God from the demon standpoint. It's a really, really fascinating read. But at one point, the senior demon warns the junior demon about pleasure and its role in temptation. This is what he says. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, We are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. It is his invention and not ours. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Yes, pleasures can be dangerous, but that does not make them ungodly. Jesus makes real wine here, and I'll explain more as to why in a minute. But this is the only way to explain the reaction of the master of the feast when he receives the wine. He calls aloud. He he calls attention to himself all across the the party. And he compliments the groom and his family who traditionally they would have paid for the wedding. And he says, everybody else I know, everybody serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Okay, grape juice is not good wine. Whatever Jesus made, the expert can tell. The host can tell. He says, this is amazing wine. Now, there's no fanfare for Jesus here. Only the servants and Mary and a few disciples understand what actually happened. Which is why John points out in verse 11, kind of at the conclusion of the story, that the disciples' response in this moment was greater faith. 
Okay, they believed in him, is the phrase John used. They believed in him. And John tells us, though, however small the circle, however unnoticed the miracle, the moment was of extreme importance to Jesus. This was the first sign, John says. It's a really important word in the book of John. This was the first sign of Jesus' ministry. Now, John will go on to show us seven such signs and point them out to us. But this is number one. These signs are are more than just magic tricks. They, They are miracles, but they're more even than what we think a miracle is. They are guides. They are clues about the kind of king Jesus is and the kind of kingdom he means to bring. So, the first thing Jesus does to show what he's all about, to demonstrate why the word became flesh and dwelt among us, as chapter one told us, is to help out. This is the first thing he does. It's to help out a little family affair, to save them from embarrassment, and to keep the party rolling. John, as he always does, invites us now to put ourselves into this story and to see ourselves as the disciples watching, but also as the family on the verge of social catastrophe and to ask ourselves, what will we do when the wine runs out? What's our response? And it is so easy when the getting is good to never ask this question, to never wonder what happens when the market turns. You know, what happens when the layoffs come, when the restructure hits, when the work dries up? What happens when my marriage isn't easy anymore, when raising kids gets really hard, when the spouse of my dreams never shows up? What happens when my body begins to break down? When my health is no longer able to keep up with my expectations for what my life is supposed to be. How easy it is to forget when the wine is flowing that it will not flow forever. The wine always runs out. Now, yes, I know Jesus just happens to be at a party and due to poor planning and poor execution, the wine runs out. You may be thinking to yourself, Andrew, you're reading too much into this. But remember, this is a sign from Jesus about him and the world that he's come to fix, to set right. The wine runs out on all of us. And you'd think, here's what surprises me most. You'd think, if, you'd, if you've studied most world religions, that what Jesus would do when the wine ran out at this party is to go and preach a sermon. Right? To take the opportunity to chastise everyone for wanting too much wine, enjoying themselves too much, or whatever. Whatever that would, right? Whatever religious view that would look like. That's what we would expect. I imagine the last thing most of us would predict is Jesus quietly going and turning the spigot back on. Which is what he does. What will we do when the wine runs out? Well, John tells us that that moment is a moment to trust more in Jesus. To believe in him as the disciples did, for two reasons that I think are really important here. The first is that Jesus' rescue plan never fails. This will increase our faith if we see it properly. When our wine runs out, as it were, our temptation to scramble and to resort to all kinds of self-preservation will let us down. This is why you'll notice, and this is true across the board, that the most successful and wealthy and famous people that you think the wine's never going to run out for these people, 
are usually the first to tell the rest of us if we're paying attention that yes, even then the wine runs out. And they can be some of the most miserable people because they've tried every human attempt to keep the party rolling and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. But Jesus' rescue plan never fails. There's a reason Jesus doesn't just snap his fingers and fill up everybody's wine glass with more wine. He could have done that. I mean, presumably, right? He, he can do whatever he wants. Just snap wine. Instead, he goes to the trouble to find those jars of purification. And then he says, go fill these up to the brim all the way. Give them everything you've got. Remember with me, these jars are more than ancient hand sanitizer. That is not primarily their function. They represent, in a very real way, for John, the entire Mosaic system. The Old Testament system of salvation and forgiveness. Which, as the author of the letter of Hebrews points out, is grace. The Old Testament, relating to God in any way, is grace. And God makes a way to do that in the Old Testament. The temple and the sacrifice and the ceremonial cleansing are a grace gift from God to Israel, but they were never effective for long. And again, the whole letter of Hebrews, you have to keep washing and keep sacrificing, keep atoning over and over and over again. They were good, but they were not good enough. They weren't enough to rescue us. Instead, what they did is they pointed to a person and a time and a moment beyond themselves. Jesus right here in Cana of Galilee says, fill those jars because that moment is now. Jesus is showing us. He says, when my hour does come, as he said to his mother, when, I, when we see him lifted up on a cross and bursting forth from an empty tomb, that the Lamb of God has finally and fully taken away the sin of the world. His rescue plan will not fail. When all others do, his does not. But it's more than that. What Jesus hints at here, when he shows, what he demonstrates, what he offers outright elsewhere, is more than a rescue plan for our sins and mistakes. It is actually to then bring us to the greatest party the world has ever known. Because Jesus' plan, his rescue plan never fails and his wine never runs out. I know this is going to sound weird, but just bear with me, okay? Jesus' response to the partygoers when their wine runs out, as I said before, was not to chastise them for wanting wine in the first place. It was to show them that as good as their wine was, his was better. Their problem wasn't ultimately that they wanted too much. Jesus says, no, 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 you, you don't want enough. You're settling for too little. Jesus isn't making this theme up on the spot. Again, all the caveats said before about the potentially destructive nature of alcohol, but the Bible consistently describes the new creation. When Jesus makes everything right and reigns on the throne in heaven as one giant party. That's the picture. And not just any party, a wedding party. And not just any wedding party, but the marriage of the bride, the people of God, and the Lamb, Jesus himself, where he will provide to the brim all the happiness and joy we could ever imagine and more. Amos the prophet 
when he saw this day from afar. He put it this way. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. There's a reason Jesus always seemed to love a good party. And it wasn't just because parties are fun. It's because they reminded him of the reason he came in the first place. This little wedding in first century Cana with a bunch of poor planners was the moment Jesus decided to remind the world that his hope and his joy and his purpose was to keep a party going that he had been planning since before the foundation of the world. To offer us a joy that cannot be taken away. A celebration that never gets old and a wine that never runs out. To remind us that he is not and never has been the obstacle to the life we've always wanted. He's the doorway to it. So how do we walk through? How do we accept this invitation? I think Mary gives us our best advice, our best picture. She says, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) Do whatever he tells you. You'll remember this was Mary's command to the servants after her brief conversation with Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. I, I love it. I think it is one of the simplest and clearest and most profound pictures of faith in Jesus that you'll find in the New Testament. Think about it with me. Jesus, or Mary turns to Jesus in crisis. Now, that's not a profound crisis. There are other stories, even just here in John, with stakes much higher than these. In John 11, another Mary with her sister Martha will beg Jesus to heal their dying brother Lazarus. We're going to get to that later this year. But compared to that, the wine running out, right? That's no big deal. But she turns to Jesus anyway, and she asks for his help. And she leaves it completely up to him. I imagine her turning away from Jesus and toward the servants and saying, do you see this guy right here? I have no idea what he's about to do. Zero. None. But whatever it is, it's the right thing and it's the best thing for everybody involved. So do what he tells you to do. And then she walks away. (laughs) Amazing. Do whatever he tells you. Not because it stops the fun, but because it leads to real joy. She trusts him with that. And notice, doing what Jesus tells us to do, simple obedience to him, is not some esoteric, mystical thing. He is here and available to help us in very real, everyday kind of problems. That's the picture. He is not an insurance plan for your soul. He is a master of ceremonies who cares about every detail of your life. And who has the best for you in mind and he knows how to get it. And he's teaching you to get it. And I think we can start really simply here. Okay, Maybe this week, read through the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew 5 to 7. Matthew chapters 5 to 7. It's a great summary, I think, of the good life Jesus came to offer. Okay, The party life, the fun life. Seriously, that's the idea. Find a command there from Jesus about the good life and do what he says. Practice it. Pray for an enemy. Give generously and anonymously. 
to the poor. Pray the Lord's Prayer daily. Pick something small and do what he says. And again, this is not to earn anything from Jesus. It is to practice for the party. That good life to come that he's preparing us for. But listen, I know. I know what you're thinking. At least some of you. You're thinking, but Andrew, it doesn't always feel like a party to obey Jesus. I know. And it won't always feel that way. That's true. But it makes the anticipation all the sweeter. Which is why we celebrate communion together. Believe it or not, we're practicing for something. Don't worry, I'm not going to use real wine today. Some of you maybe be, are disappointed with that, I know. But we don't need alcohol to celebrate what Jesus is doing and what he's offering here. And for those of you who wonder, okay, there's good reason we don't do that. Other churches differ on this. But we want to make sure we're serving anyone and everyone who comes through these doors who may struggle with substance abuse. So this is how we practice communion. And as strange as it sounds, the communion table is not just a sobering, self-reflective place. It is that. But it's also a foretaste. It's a teaser, an appetizer for the real thing, the feast, the party to come. It is a tangible reminder, yes, that Jesus' body had to break and his blood had to spill to deal with our sin. But more than that, It's a picture of why Jesus went to all that trouble in the first place. To keep a party going, a celebration moving that was before all things, that is hidden in all things, and will one day redeem all things. And he wants every one of us there. He wants every one of us there so badly that he gave up everything, even unto death on a cross, to lift us up with him. That's what this sign means. That's what this table means. So if you're ready to join in, if you've believed in him, as the disciples do here, as that's their response to this moment, I, I'm going to pray. And then please come celebrate with Jesus. We have uh, four tables up here. I believe this table to my far left over here is gluten-free if you need that up here up front. And if you're not comfortable gathering In groups just yet, we have two self-serve stations here in the back of the room. After I pray, if you are his, come and celebrate with him. Now, if you're here and you've not believed in him, you're not sure where you stand, I'm so glad that you're here. And I want to remind you that you honor us and our tradition by not taking of these elements, which, which are for followers of Jesus. Instead, I want to invite you to take this moment to pray and reflect. What's holding you back from him? Where do you sense in your life the wine is running out and you don't know what to do? Maybe ask Jesus to reveal himself to you in that space just this week. As we prepare our hearts to come, let's pray together. Father, as we come to your table, as we approach this reminder of grace, Holy Spirit, yes, of course, call to mind the things we need to set aside and leave behind and turn away from as we come to your table. Perhaps it's bread that is not from you, wine not from you, that we are relying on in, your, in, in Jesus' place. Help us to turn away from those things, yes, but as we come to your table, 
Help us to celebrate this incredible gift you give, this invitation to a wedding that we eagerly wait for and give us hope in that time between. Father, speak to us.